0: Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Now, chips are everywhere. Whether you call it a semiconductor, an integrated circuit or anything else, those tiny microscopic pieces of silicon power and define our lives. From smartphones to cars and washing machines, chips are the very foundation of the world as we know it. They are so critical to how modern societies function that they, and their entire supply chains, have become the basis for geopolitical competition. Unlike several other technologies, however, the highest-end chips cannot just be produced by anyone. Taiwan's Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, controls about 90% of the market for advanced chips. And it doesn't seem as if any other company or country can catch up. But why? What is TSMC's secret sauce? What makes its semiconductors so special? Why is the semiconductor market unique? And why are they so crucial to the world economy and to geopolitics? So many questions and for answers, I spoke with Chris Miller. He's the author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Miller is an associate professor of international history at Tufts University's Fletcher School. He is really the expert on this topic. You should buy his book, of course, but start by listening to him here. As always, FP subscribers send us questions for these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE. For a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com. Let's dive in. Chris Miller, welcome to FP Live. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. So I thought we could just start with a quick bit of history. Chips are relatively new, they were invented in 1959, and now they are the world's most important sort of geopolitical currency. And as you've pointed out, China spends more on importing chips than it does in oil. How did we get here?
1: Well, over the past half century, chips have gotten more advanced, but they've simultaneously gotten cheaper. And what that's enabled is the application of computing power to all manner of devices. And so it's not just smartphones or PCs that have chips inside. It's almost everything with an on-off switch from dishwashers to cars to coffee makers. And so the entire world economy depends on access to chips, but producing them is enormously difficult. And there's just a couple of companies in the world that have the requisite technology and production capacity to make advanced semiconductors and to produce the specialized machine tools that are needed for that manufacturing process.
0: Why can't everyone try to make this, you know, just the way you know, so many countries make their own cars, so many countries make their own washing machines. What is it that is so special about semiconductors that everyone can't do it? Well, this is the hardest manufacturing that humans
1: have ever undertaken. If, if you go to the store and buy a new smartphone, open it up, the primary chip inside, of which there will be dozens of chips, but just the most important one will have around 15 billion microscopic transistors carved into it. And a transistor is just a switch that turns circuits on or off. But to fit 15 billion of them on a chip the size of your fingernail requires each one of them to be roughly the size of a coronavirus. So manufacturing 15 billion virus-sized devices is the hardest thing we've ever done. It requires extraordinary precision, extraordinary accuracy, and brutally expensive manufacturing processes. And that's why there's just a couple of companies in the world that can produce this type of cutting-edge
0: semiconductor. And so which companies are those and where are they based? If you can just break down the country-by-country sort of percentage of total global output on semiconductors, I think that could be useful. Well, a lot depends on which
1: type of semiconductor you're looking at. There are three different categories. There's processor chips, which process data. There's memory chips, which remember data. And then there's a more diffuse third category of sensors, communications, power management chips. But if we focus in on the processor chips, which are the types of chips that are inside of your smartphone or your PC or the data centers that process and remember your data, there's extraordinary concentration in the industry. There's really just three companies in the world that produce anything close to the cutting edge when it comes to processor chips. There's Intel in the United States, there's Samsung in South Korea. And then, most significantly of all, there's TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which produces 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips.
0: So, it's hard to imagine another industry where one company has a 90% sort of monopoly over something that is so integral to our lives in so many different ways. What exactly gives TSMC this cutting edge? How did it get there? TSMC was founded over three decades ago by an
1: entrepreneur named Morris Chang, who had a really innovative idea at the time. Before TSMC was founded, almost all chips were both designed and manufactured by the same companies. But Morris Chang realized that chip making was getting more difficult, more expensive, and that if he could do all the manufacturing, there would be lots of customers that would want to take their design And outsource the manufacturing to his company. And that's how TSMC was started. They were the first business with this unique manufacturing focus model in mind. And the impact was that it let TSMC scale up dramatically because there turned out to be lots of customers like Apple or NVIDIA, which didn't want to deal with manufacturing, were very skilled at design, but trust TSMC with almost all of their most advanced manufacturing. And so today, TSMC is the world's largest chip maker because of this unique business model and because it's the largest chip maker it's also the most advanced because it's able to hone its production processes over the larger number of chips that it produces and that's put it at the center of the chip ecosystem and so today when it comes to the software tools or the machine tools or chip designs almost everything is designed so that it matches with tsmc's processes because tsmc is at the center
0: of this ecosystem You know, and when we think about TSMC as having this immense advantage over other companies and countries, is it that they have a monopoly on the right kind of instruments that make semiconductors? Is it that they just have human capital, which is hard to replicate? Or what is it? What gives them a cutting edge? And why can't other countries replicate that?
1: There's actually nothing unique in terms of the tools or software that TSMC has access to. And one of the striking things about the industry is that if you go into any advanced production facility, you'll see more or less the same tools inside of them. But there are vast differentials in terms of the capability of using these tools to produce advanced chips, which is the special sauce that has made TSMC so successful. But its intellectual property is not something that can be Patented very easily or acquired because it's in the the minds of the several thousand production engineers who run TSMC's processes. And so there's a, a unique recipe that TSMC has, but there's not a single person who knows the entire recipe because it's distributed across all of the different process steps that are involved in making an advanced chip. And today for a cutting edge semiconductor, there are at over 1,000, in some cases, 2,000 different process steps in the manufacturing process, each one involving manipulating materials at almost the atomic level. And so the complexity is so high that there's not a single person in the world who understands how to make an advanced ship from the start of the process
0: to the end of the process. I guess part of you know where my mind is at on this is if a company can be so dominant in one area, why can't a country... Be dominant. So if the United States chose to try and build its own semiconductor manufacturing industry, what is holding it back from doing so? And also, have countries tried to do this? Well, countries have tried in the past to do it all themselves,
1: but it's been a bad strategy because the level of capital investment and the level of R&D intensivity involved is unparalleled across almost every other sector of the economy. And so the right strategy historically has been to specialize in what each country does best. And that's why the best chemicals come from Japanese firms. Many of the most specialized machine tools and software tools come from the US. Many of the advanced chip designs come from the US as well. But the manufacturing at the most advanced level happens in Taiwan. This specialization has been absolutely critical to producing the innovation and the efficiency that makes the semiconductor industry work at the level that it does today. So we shouldn't look at specialization and say it's a bad thing. It's been a great thing. The question is, does the specialization and the concentration of certain parts of the supply chain in specific geographies create risks to the resiliency of supply in case of crisis? That's the issue that we need to be focusing on.
0: Now, China, of course, has tried to make its own semiconductors. Talk to us a little bit about how that has worked so far. And clearly, it hasn't been as successful as Beijing would have liked. Why? Well, China's been pouring
1: tens of billions of dollars a year into its ship industry since around 2014, when the Chinese leadership identified this as an industrial policy priority and set out a number of key industrial policy strategies, the most famous of which is Made in China 2025, designed to promote the chip industry. But as you say, it's only been partially successful. China is still quite dependent on importing tools and software and advanced semiconductors from abroad. And the reason is that money alone can't build an effective the chip industry. Because of the precision, because of the unique R&D demands, there's a lot that money can't solve. And so the Chinese government has been good at deploying capital. Uh, in terms of the volume of capital deployed, but it's been relatively ineffective at doing so in the direction of companies that can succeed at overcoming uh, innovation barriers or succeed in bringing products to market effectively. And so the net effect of China's investment has been actually that most investment hasn't paid off, uh, and China spent a lot of money without getting much of a return on that investment. Now, the scale alone of China's investment and of the Chinese domestic market means that China is going to begin to reshape the chip industry as it focuses more and more. And so that's what sparked the response from the US, from Japan and from other countries uh, to China's focus on the industry. But we shouldn't assume that China has an easy pathway for catching up because China has been trying to catch up for the last decade and it still remains fairly far behind.
0: And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday.
1: In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing.
0: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So,
1: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Chris, I want to put a pin in sort of US-China competition here. And just come back to companies for a second, and you'll see why. So with TSMC, they're clearly, you know, a market leader in a way that gives them a monopoly on chip making. Is that something that's going to last? So what are the things that could happen that would lead to TSMC not being the global leader in the future? And is that something that is even possible? Well, it's certainly
1: possible that TSMC could slip up, and leadership in the chip industry is particularly hard to maintain because of Moore's Law, which demands that every two years the computing power on a cutting-edge chip will double, which is an extraordinary advanced capabilities that it's very difficult for companies to keep up with. And so TSMC has to, on a very regular basis, roll out dramatically improved manufacturing capabilities, which is something that it's done very well at in the past but there's no guarantee it will keep succeeding in the future and it does face competition from samsung from intel in particular but i think if you ask around the industry most people would bet on tsmc's continued success both because of their track record at delivering and because of their scale and centrality in the chip industry which give them a leg up relative to their
0: competitors how important again is human capital here so were samsung to throw a lot of money, to say, you know, we'll triple your salaries, all of you engineers at TSMC. And there's a bidding war and Intel jumps in as well. And then another government somewhere else jumps in and says, you know, we'll pay more than all of them and we'll give you all these other perks. Have people tried to do that? Would that work? Well, the best example of firms that have tried to do that are actually Chinese
1: firms, which have spent much of the last decade and a half hiring uh, Taiwanese ship engineers with uh, the prospect of two, three, or four times the salary they'd make in Taiwan. and this has led to some improvements in uh, Chinese shipmakers, but it's been far from a panacea. I think the reason is that it's it's not just about hiring one or ten or uh, twenty engineers. You need an entire r and d process and then an entire manufacturing process to work almost perfectly, and that requires organizing, managing hundreds of thousands of engineers effectively. And so there's no one single group of people who has unique knowledge uh, that can transform a company's shipmaking process, you need the entire system uh, to work well. And that's why although you see a lot of movement back and forth between engineers from different companies, there's not any individual engineer with the type of unique knowledge that can on his or her own transform a business.
0: Wow. And so it seems very decentralized in that sense. Does that make the chip-making industry unique? Is it different from, say, manufacturers of fighter jets or aircraft carriers or other things that seem so complicated to a layperson like me? I think there are two things that make the
1: chip industry stand out from all others. The first is the capital intensity the cost of building a new factory. A, a new shipping facility will cost $20 billion. Dollars. That's twice the cost of an aircraft carrier. They're the wow. most expensive factories in human history. Nothing else uh, comes particularly close. And so that means that startups aren't able to compete in this industry. There's, there's not a chance you're going to raise twenty billion dollars for a, a startup in the chip making sector.
0: I imagine, Chris, when you build, I don't know, a factory or a foundry for an aircraft carrier, you're good to go for decades, right? Whereas with a chip making factory. How long does that, you put, you put in the $20 billion, how long does that keep you in the game? Well, that's exactly right.
1: Because of Moore's Law, there's a relentless push towards new technologies. And so a facility that's cutting edge will, in a couple years' time, be uh, far behind the cutting edge. And so if you look at companies like TSMC or Samsung or Intel, they're constantly investing this sum every year or two to build the next generation facility. And they have to do that because the technology is racing forward.
0: Let's move now a bit to the geopolitics of chips and the chip wars, as it were, to use the title of your book. When the United States passed uh, its Chips Act last year, its goal was to you know, try and ensure that China wouldn't have a leg up in, in semiconductor manufacturing and really wanted to cut it off. From supply chains around the world, do you think that is working so far, and is that a good way of trying to have a country sort of maintain some sort of supremacy in this area? Well, I think the, the Chips Act is is working in its first
1: order goals of limiting the transfer of advanced shipmaking tools to China first, and then second in terms of increasing investment in shipmaking in the United States. There's been a big increase in new chip-making facilities under construction in direct response to the CHIPS Act incentives. But I think there's uh, less certainty about whether these initiatives are going to reach their longer-run goals about strengthening America's competitive advantages vis-a-vis China. If you look in the defense technology sphere, there's no doubt that semiconductors are an absolutely critical component to defense technologies. But one of the key challenges that the U.S. faces is that when it's got advances in computing capabilities, like in chips, it's relatively slow to deploy them to defense and intelligence systems. If you think about Apple, which produces a new iPhone roughly every year with a new chip inside it roughly every year, and then compare that to a fighter jet, which is online for decades and gets its electronics upgraded once every couple of years in the best case uh, scenario, the defense industrial base hasn't really caught up to the the smartphone age and so there's a real risk that we have these computing advantages demonstrated by our semiconductor capabilities and our ability to design ai systems but that the defense and intelligence base doesn't actually take advantage of them i think that's actually the bigger risk to the u.s strategy than the semiconductor specific facets of it
0: and of course central to all of this is the fate of taiwan It's so clear that one of the the biggest animating forces in US foreign policy is China, is containing China, uh, or at least sort of slowing its uh, its tentacles from wrapping around uh, US national security interests. But the biggest one of all, of course, is Taiwan and uh, Taiwan's uh, semiconductor manufacturing company, TSMC, which we've been talking about. How does TSMC's future and fate play into discussions about uh, Taiwan's independence? Well, I think the Chinese leadership has wanted
1: to seize control of Taiwan since before the first semiconductor was invented. And indeed, the world was on the brink of nuclear war in 1958 over the second Taiwan Straits crisis, uh, Straits Crisis just months before the first ship was Uh, fabricated in Texas. So there's a lot that is uh, animating the, um, the Chinese efforts to take Taiwan beyond just the chip industry. But it's certainly true that the fact that Taiwan is such a critical player in the production of the chips we rely on, that raises the risks further that if something does go wrong in the Taiwan Straits, if there is a Chinese blockade or a Chinese attack, its implications not just in terms of the risk of broader war, but also even if war is avoided, there's huge risks of disruptions of supply chains in which all manufacturing depends on. And it's not just smartphones or PCs, it's also autos and dishwashers and coffee makers that would face dramatic disruptions in case of any loss to access to Taiwan's shipment capacity.
0: You know, part of what happened after the pandemic is every company and country began to think about nearshoring, French shoring, diversifying supply chains. And it strikes me that on semiconductors, we are the least prepared to deal with a supply shock or to diversify, given everything you're saying about the centrality of Taiwan and of TSMC. So what happens if there is a conflict over Taiwan or even just a blockade? What happens to TSMC?
1: Well, I think in any sort of conflict scenario, we must assume that TSMC's facilities get knocked offline for a long time, perhaps permanently. And if that were to happen, it would plunge the world into a Great Depression level of disruption to manufacturing. There's no way to sugarcoat the impact. It would be economically disastrous. Because if you think about all of the manufactured goods we rely on, Almost all of the high-value ones have not just one chip, but often dozens or hundreds of chips inside, and a not insignificant portion of those chips are made in Taiwan. And there's no spare capacity anywhere else. So the struggle in case of this crisis scenario would be to actually produce dumber devices that relied on fewer chips so we could actually find a way to manufacture cars without relying on so many semiconductors as we tried over the subsequent half-decade to rebuild chip
0: capacity, in other
1: geographies, other parts of the world.
0: And how possible would that be? Like if Taiwan or TSMC tries to build in say Arizona, which I know it has plans to do so, could a mass relocation uh, in the event of uh, a war or something like that, is that remotely feasible? Well, even if you suppose you can get the personnel out of Taiwan,
1: you can't get the machines out of Taiwan. In a crisis scenario. And the machines are absolutely critical. 70% of the cost of a chipmaking facility is the machine tools. These are the most precise and complex machines ever produced. And there's just no way you're going to ramp up production of the machine tools required to replace those that were deployed in Taiwan. It's already the case that the machine tool companies book out their production over 12 months in advance. So there's no spare capacity in the machine tool production either, which is why. If we needed to ramp up production of semiconductors outside of Taiwan, it's not something we could do very quickly.
0: Where do you see the chip wars heading five, 10 years from now?
1: I think the trend we're seeing right now is that the disruption in semiconductor supply chains caused by both US and Chinese efforts to reshape them to suit each country's political interests are having ricochet effects all the way down the electronics industry. And so today, even simple uh, parts of the electronics manufacturing process, like the assembly of phones or PCs, is being impacted. And we see lots of new investment taking place, trying to add resilience and to build assembly capacity in other geographies that are less exposed to China, US, Taiwan tensions.
0: And that was Chris Miller, the author of Chip War. Next week, we're going to look at the U.S.-India relationship. These are the two largest democracies in the world. They are big economies with large populations, and they have a lot in common. But one storied watcher of the U.S.-India relationship, Ashley Tallis, says Washington might be making a bad bet on New Delhi if it thinks it's going to get any real help in a broader competition with China. Ashley Tellis will be my guest next week. And that conversation comes right as Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi comes to the White House for a state visit. Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. They can also see who else we have coming up on the website. Sign up and use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I will see you soon.